Chapter Six of A Woman's Life by Guy de Maupassant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Lisa Reichert. Chapter Six. When the postchaise drove up, the Baron and Baroness and all the servants were standing outside the white railings to give the travellers a hearty welcome home. The Baroness cried. Jeanne quietly wiped away two tears, and her father walked backwards and forwards nervously. Then, while the luggage was being brought in, the whole journey was gone over again before the drawing-room fire. The eager words flowed from Jeanne's lips, and in half an hour she had related everything, except a few little details, which she forgot in her haste. Then she went to unpack, with Rosalie, who was in a state of great excitement, to help her. When she had finished and everything had been put away in its proper place, Rosalie left her mistress and Jeanne sat down, feeling a little tired. She wondered what she could do next, and she tried to think of some occupation for her mind, some task for her fingers. She did not want to go down to the drawing-room again to sit by her mother, who was dozing, and she thought of going for a walk, but it was so miserable out of doors that only to glance out of the window made her feel melancholy. Then the thought flashed across her mind that now there would never be anything for her to do. At the convent the future had always given her something to think about, and her dreams had filled the hours so that their flight had passed unnoticed. But she had hardly left the convent when her love dreams had been realized. In a few weeks she had met, loved, and married a man who had borne her away in his arms, without giving her time to think of anything. But now the sweet reality of the first few weeks of married life was going to become a daily monotony, barring the way to all the hopes and delicious fears of an unknown future. There was nothing more to which she could look forward, nothing more for her to do, today, tomorrow, or ever. She felt all that with a vague sensation of disillusion and melancholy. She rose and went to lean her forehead against the cold window-pane, and after looking for some time at the dull sky and heavy clouds, she made up her mind to go out. Could it really be the same country, the same grass, the same trees as she had seen with such joy in May? What had become of the sun-bathed leaves and the flaming dandelions, the blood-red poppies, the pure marguerites that had reared their heads amidst the green grass, above which had fluttered innumerable yellow butterflies? They were all gone, and the very air seemed changed, for now it was no longer full of life and fertilizing germs and intoxicating perfumes. The avenues were soaked by the autumn rains and covered with a thick carpet of dead leaves, and the thin branches of the poplars trembled in the wind, which was shaking off the few leaves that still hung on them. All day long these last golden leaves hovered and whirled in the air for a few seconds, and then fell in an incessant melancholy rain. Jeanne walked on down to the wood. It gave her the sad impression of being in the room of a dying man. The leafy walls which had separated the pretty winding paths no longer existed. The branches of the shrubs blew mournfully one against the other, the rustling of the fallen leaves that the wind was blowing about and piling into heaps sounded like a dying sigh, and the birds hopped from tree to tree with shivering little chirps, vainly seeking a shelter from the cold. Shielded by the elms which formed a sort of vanguard against the sea wind, 
the linden and the plane tree were still covered with leaves, and the one was clothed in a mantle of scarlet velvet, the other in a cloak of orange silk. Jeanne walked slowly along the Baroness's avenue by the side of the Cuillard's farm, beginning to realize what a dull, monotonous life lay before her. Then she sat down on the slope where Julien had first told his love, too sad even to think, and only feeling that she would like to go to bed and sleep, so that she might escape from this melancholy day. Looking up, she saw a seagull blown along by a gust of wind, and she suddenly thought of the eagle she had seen in Corsica, in the sombre valley of Ota. As she sat there, she could see again the island with its sun-ripened oranges, its strong perfume, its pink-topped mountains, its azure bays, its ravines with their rushing torrents, and it gave her a sharp pain to think of that happy time that was past and gone, and the damp, rugged country by which she was now surrounded, the mournful fall of the leaves, the grey clouds hurrying before the wind, made her feel so miserable that she went indoors, feeling that she should cry if she stayed out any longer. She found her mother, who was accustomed to these dull days, dozing over the fire. The Baron and Julian had gone for a walk, and night was drawing on, filling the vast drawing-room with dark shadows, which were sometimes dispersed by the fitful gleams of the fire. Out of doors, the grey sky and muddy fields could just be seen in the fading light. The Baron and Julien came in soon after Jeanne. As soon as he came into the gloomy room, the Baron rang the bell, exclaiming, "'How miserable you look in here! Let us have some lights!' He sat down before the fire, putting his feet near the flame, which made the mud drop off his steaming boots. "'I think it is going to freeze,' he said, rubbing his hands together cheerfully. "'The sky is clearing towards the north, and it's a full moon this evening. We shall have a hard frost to-night.' Then, turning towards his daughter, "'Well, my dear,' he asked, "'are you glad to get back to your own house "'and see the old people at home again?' This simple question quite upset Jeanne. Her eyes filled with tears, and she threw herself into her father's arms, covering his face with kisses as though she would ask him to forgive her discontent. She had thought she should be so pleased to see her parents again, and now, instead of joy, she felt a coldness around her heart, and it seemed as if she could not regain all her former love for them, until they had all dropped back into their ordinary ways again. Dinner seemed very long that evening. No one spoke, and Julien did not pay the least attention to his wife. In the drawing-room after dinner, Jeanne dozed over the fire opposite the baroness, who was quite asleep, and when she was aroused for a moment by the voices of the two men, raised in argument over something, she wondered if she would ever become quite content with a pleasureless, listless life like her mother. The crackling fire burnt clear and bright, and threw sudden gleams on the faded tapestry chairs, on the fox and the stork, on the melancholy-looking heron, on the ant and the grasshopper. The baron came over to the fireplace and held his hands to the blaze. "'The fire burns well to-night,' he said. "'There is a frost, I am sure.' He put his hand on Jeanne's shoulder, and, pointing to the fire, "'My child,' he said, "'the hearth with all one's family around it is the happiest spot on earth. There is no place like it. But don't you think we had better go to bed? 
You must both be quite worn out with fatigue. Up in her bedroom, Jeanne wondered how this second return to the place she loved so well could be so different from the first. Why did she feel so miserable? She asked herself. Why did the chateau, the fields, everything she had so loved, seem today so desolate? Her eyes fell on the clock. The little bee was swinging from left to right and from right to left over the gilded flowers with the same quick, even movement as of old. She suddenly felt a glow of affection for this little piece of mechanism, which told her the hour in its silvery tones and beat like a human heart and the tears came into her eyes as she looked at it. She had not felt so moved when she had kissed her father and mother on her return, but the heart has no rules or logic to guide it. Julien had made his fatigue the pretext for not sharing his wife's chamber that night, so for the first time since her marriage she slept alone. It had been agreed that henceforth they should have separate rooms, but she was not yet accustomed to sleep alone and for a long time she lay awake while the moaning wind swept round the house. In the morning she was aroused by a blood-red light falling on her bed. Through the frozen window-panes it looked as if the whole sky were on fire. Throwing a big dressing-gown round her, Jeanne ran to the window and opened it, and in rushed an icy wind, stinging her skin and bringing the water to her eyes. In the midst of a crimson sky, the great red sun was rising behind the trees, and the white frost had made the ground so hard that it rang under the farm servant's feet. In this one night, all the branches of the poplars had been entirely stripped of their few remaining leaves, and through the bare trees beyond the plain appeared the long green line of the sea, covered with white-crested waves. The plane tree and the linden were being rapidly stripped of their bright coverings by the cold wind and showers of leaves fell to the ground as each gust swept by. Jeanne dressed herself, and, for want of something better to do, went to see the farmers. The Martins were very surprised to see her. Madame Martin kissed her on both cheeks, and she had to drink a little glass of noyau. Then she went over to the other farm. The Cuillard were also very surprised when she came in. The farmer's wife gave two pecks at her ears and insisted on her drinking a little glass of cassis. Then she went in to breakfast. And that day passed like the previous one, only it was cold instead of damp, and the other days of the week were like the first two, and all the weeks of the month were like the first one. Little by little, Jeanne's regrets for those happy, distant lands vanished. She began to get resigned to her life, to feel an interest in the many unimportant details of the days, and to perform her simple, regular occupations with care. A disenchantment of life, a sort of settled melancholy, gradually took possession of her. What did she want? She did not know herself. She had no desire for society, no thirst for the excitement of the world. The pleasures she might have had possessed no attraction for her. But all her dreams and illusions had faded away, leaving her life as colourless as the old tapestry chairs in the chateau drawing-room. Her relations with Julien had completely changed, for he became quite a different man when they settled down after their wedding tour, like an actor who becomes himself again as soon as he has finished playing his part. He hardly ever took any notice of his wife, or even spoke to her. All his love seemed to have suddenly disappeared. 
and it was very seldom that he accompanied her to her room of a night. He had taken the management of the estate and the household into his own hands, and he looked into all the accounts, saw that the peasants paid their arrears of rent, and cut down every expense. No longer the polished, elegant man who had won Jeanne's heart, he looked and dressed like a well-to-do farmer, neglecting his personal appearance with the carelessness of a man who no longer strives to fascinate. He always wore an old velvet shooting jacket, covered all over with stains, which he had found one day as he was looking over his old clothes. Then he left off shaving, and his long, untrimmed beard made him look quite plain, while his hands never received any attention. After each meal he drank four or five small glasses of brandy, and when Jeanne affectionately reproached him, he answered so roughly, "'Leave me alone, can't you?' that she never tried to reason with him again. She accepted all this in a calm way that astonished herself, but she looked upon him now as a stranger who was nothing whatever to her. She often thought of it all, and wondered how it was that after having loved and married each other in a delicious passion of affection, they should suddenly awake from their dream of love as utter strangers, as if they had never lain in each other's arms. How was it his indifference did not hurt her more? Had they been mistaken in each other? Would she have been more pained if Julian had still been handsome, elegant, and attractive? It was understood that at the new year the baron and baroness were to spend a few months in their Rouen house, leaving Les Peuples to the young people, who had become settled that winter, and so get accustomed to the place where they were to pass their lives. Julien wanted to present his wife to the Briseville, the Coutelier, and the Fourville, but they could not pay these visits yet because they had not been able to get the painter to change the coat of arms on the carriage, for nothing in the world would have persuaded Julien to go to the neighbouring chateau in the old family carriage, which the baron had given up to him until the arms of the Delamar had been quartered on it with those of the Lepertuis de Vaud. Now there was only one man in the whole province who made a speciality of coats of arms, a painter from Bolbec named Bataille, who was naturally in great request among all the Normandy aristocracy. So Julien had to wait some time before he could secure his services. At last, one December morning, just as they were finishing lunch at Les Peuples, they saw a man with a box on his back open the gate and come up the path. It was Bataille. He was shown into the dining-room, and lunch was served to him, just as if he had been a gentleman, for his constant intercourse with the provincial aristocracy, his knowledge of the coats of arms, their mottoes and signification, made him a sort of herald with whom no gentleman need be ashamed to shake hands. Pencils and paper were brought, and while Bataille ate his lunch, the Baron and Julien made sketches of their escutcheons with all the quarters. The Baroness, always delighted when anything of this sort was discussed, gave her advice, and even Jeanne took part in the conversation, as if it had aroused some interest in her. Bataille, without interrupting his lunch, occasionally gave an opinion, took the pencil to make a sketch of his idea, quoted examples, described all the aristocratic carriages in Normandy, and seemed to scatter an atmosphere of nobility all around him. He was a little man with thin grey hair and paint-daubed hands which smelt of oil. It was said 
that he had once committed a grave offence against public morality, but the esteem in which he was held by all the titled families had long ago effaced this stain on his character. As soon as the painter had finished his coffee, he was taken to the coach-house, and the carriage was uncovered. Bataille looked at it, gave an idea of the size he thought the shield ought to be, and then, after the others had again given their opinions, he began his work. In spite of the cold, the baroness ordered a chair and a foot-warmer to be brought out for her, that she might sit and watch the painter. Soon she began to talk to him, asking him about the marriages and births and deaths of which she had not yet heard, and adding these fresh details to the genealogical trees which she already knew by heart. Beside her, astride a chair, sat Julien, smoking a pipe and occasionally spitting on the ground as he watched the growth of this coloured certificate of his nobility. Soon old Simon, on his way to the kitchen garden, stopped, with his spade on his shoulder, to look at the painting, and the news of Bataille's arrival having reached the two farms, the farmer's wives came hurrying up also. Standing on either side of the baroness, they went into ecstasies over the drawing, and kept repeating, he must be clever to paint like that. The shields on both carriage doors were finished the next morning about eleven o'clock. Everyone came to look at the work now it was done, and the carriage was drawn out of the coach-house that they might the better judge of the effect. The design was pronounced perfect, and Bataille received a great many compliments before he strapped his box on his back and went off again. The baron, his wife, Jeanne, and Julienne all agreed that the painter was a man of great talent, and would no doubt have become an artist if circumstances had permitted. For the sake of economy, Julienne had accomplished some reforms which brought with them the need of fresh arrangements. The old coachman now performed the duties of a gardener, the vicomte himself undertaking to drive, and as he was obliged to have someone to hold the horses when the family went to make a visit, he had made a groom of a young cowherd named Marius. The horses had been sold to do away with the expense of their keep, so he had introduced a clause in Cuillard's and Martin's leases by which the two farmers bound themselves to each provide a horse once a month, on whatever day the vicomte chose. When the day came, the Cuillards produced a big, raw-boned, yellowish horse, and the Martins a little, white, long-haired nag. The two horses were harnessed, and Marius, buried in an old livery of Simon's, brought the carriage round to the door. Julien, who was in his best clothes, would have looked a little like his old elegant self if his long beard had not made him look common. He inspected the horses, the carriage, and the little groom, and thought they looked very well, the only thing of any importance in his eyes being the new coat of arms. The baroness came downstairs on her husband's arm, got in, and had some cushions put behind her back. Then came Jeanne. She laughed first at the strange pair of horses, and her laughter increased when she saw Marius with his face buried under his cocaded hat, which his nose alone prevented from slipping down to his chin, and his hands lost in his ample sleeves, and the skirts of his coat coming right down to his feet, which were encased in enormous boots. But when she saw him obliged to throw his head right back before he could see anything, and raise his knee at each step as though he were going to take a river in his stride, and move like a blind man when he had an order given him, 
she gave a shout of laughter. The baron turned round, looked for a moment at the little fellow who stood looking so confused in his big clothes, and then he too was overcome with laughter, and hardly able to speak called out to his wife, Look at Marius! Doesn't he look funny? The baroness leant out of the carriage window, and catching sight of Marius, she was shaken by such a fit of laughter that the carriage moved up and down on its springs, as if it were jolting over some deep ruts. "'What on earth is there to laugh at like that?' said Julien, his face pale with anger. "'You must be perfect idiots, all of you.' Jeanne sat down on the steps, holding her sides and quite unable to contain herself. The baron followed her example, and inside the carriage convulsive sneezes and a sort of continual clucking intimated that the baroness was suffocating with laughter. At last Marius' coat began to shake. No doubt he understood the cause of all this mirth, and he giggled himself beneath his big hat. Julien rushed towards him in a rage. He gave him a box on the ear which knocked the boy's hat off and sent it rolling onto the grass. Then, turning to the baron, he said, in a voice that trembled with anger, I think you ought to be the last one to laugh. Whose fault is it that you are ruined? We should not be like this if you had not squandered your fortune and thrown away your money right and left. All the laughter stopped abruptly, but no one spoke. Jeanne, ready to cry now, quietly took her place beside her mother. The baron, without a word, sat down opposite, and Julien got up on the box, after lifting up the crying boy whose cheek was beginning to swell. The long drive was performed in silence, for they all felt awkward and unable to converse on ordinary topics. They could only think of the incident that had just happened, and rather than broach such a painful subject, they preferred to sit in dull silence. They went past a great many farmhouses, startling the black fowls and sending them to the hedges for refuge, and sometimes a yelping dog followed for a little while, and then ran back to his kennel with bristling hair, turning round every now and then to send another bark after the carriage. A lad in muddy sabots was slouching along with his hands in his pockets, his blouse blown out by the wind, and his long lazy legs dragging one after the other and as he stood on one side for the carriage to pass, he awkwardly pulled off his cap. Between each farm lay meadows with other farms dotted here and there in the distance, and it seemed a long while before they turned up an avenue of firs which bordered the road. Here the carriage leant on one side as it passed over the steep ruts, and the baroness felt frightened and began to give little screams. At the end of the avenue there was a white gate which Marius jumped down to open, and then they drove round an immense lawn and drew up before a high, gloomy-looking house which had all its shutters closed. The hall door opened, and an old, semi-paralyzed servant, in a red and black striped waistcoat over which was tied an apron, limped sideways down the steps. After asking the visitors' names, he showed them into a large drawing-room and drew up the closed Venetian blinds. The furniture was all covered up, and the clock and candelabra were enveloped in white cloths. The room smelt mouldy, and its damp, cold atmosphere seemed to chill one to the very heart. The visitors sat down and waited. Footsteps could be heard on the floor above, hurrying along in an unusual bustle, 
for the lady of the house had been taken unawares, and was changing her dress as quickly as possible. A bell rang several times, and then they could hear more footsteps on the stairs. The baroness, feeling thoroughly cold, began to sneeze frequently. Julien walked up and down the room, Jeanne sat by her mother, and the baron stood with his back against the marble mantelpiece. At last a door opened, and the vicomte and vicomtesse de Briseville appeared. They were a little, thin couple of an uncertain age, both very formal and rather embarrassed. The vicomtesse wore a flowered silk gown and a cap trimmed with ribbons, and when she spoke it was in a sharp, quick voice. Her husband was in a tight frock coat, his hair looked as if it had been waxed, and his nose, his eyes, his long teeth and his coat, which was evidently his best one, all shone as if they had been polished with the greatest care. He returned his visitor's bow with a bend of the knees. When the ordinary complimentary phrases had been exchanged, no one knew what to say next, so they all politely expressed their pleasure at making this new acquaintance, and hoped it would be a lasting one. For living as they did in the country all the year round, an occasional visit made an agreeable change. The icy air of the drawing-room froze the very marrow of their bones, and the baroness was seized by a fit of coughing, interrupted at intervals by a sneeze. The baron rose to go. "'You are not going to leave us already. Pray stay a little longer,' said the Briseville. But Jeanne followed her father's example in spite of all the signs made her by Julien, who thought they were leaving too soon. The vicomtesse would have rung to order the baron's carriage, but the bell was out of order, so the vicomte went to find a servant. He soon returned to say that the horses had been taken out, and the carriage would not be ready for some minutes. Everyone tried to find some subject of conversation. The rainy winter was discussed, and Jeanne, who could not prevent herself shivering, try as she would, asked if their hosts did not find it very dull living alone all the year round. Such a question astounded the Briseville. Their time was always fully occupied, what with writing long letters to their numerous aristocratic relations, and pompously discussing the most trivial matters, for in all their useless, petty occupations they were as formally polite to each other as they would have been to utter strangers. At last the carriage, with its two ill-matched steeds, drove up before the door, but Marius was nowhere to be seen. He had gone for a walk in the fields, thinking he would not be wanted again until the evening. Julien, in a great rage, left word for him to be sent after them on foot, and after a great many bows and compliments, they started for Les Peuples again. As soon as they were fairly off, Jeanne and the Baron, in spite of the uncomfortable feeling that Julien's ill-temper had caused, began to laugh and joke about the Briseville's ways and tones. The Baron imitated the husband, and Jeanne the wife. But the Baroness, feeling a little hurt in her reverence for the aristocracy, said to them, "'You should not make joke in that way. I'm sure the Briseville are very well-bred people, and they belong to excellent families.' They stopped laughing for a time, out of respect for the baroness's feelings. But every now and then Jeanne would catch her father's eye, and then they began again. The baron would make a very stiff bow, and say in a solemn voice, "'Your chateau at Les Peuples must be very cold, madame, with the sea-breeze blowing on it all day long.' 
Then Jeanne put on a very prim look and said with a smirk, moving her head all the time like a duck on the water, Oh, monsieur, I have plenty to fill up my time. You see, we have so many relations to whom letters must be written, and monsieur de Briseville leaves all correspondence to me, as his time is taken up with the religious history of Normandy that he is writing in collaboration with the Abbe Pelle. The baroness could not help smiling, but she repeated, in a half-vexed, half-amused tone, It isn't right to laugh at people of our own rank like that. All at once the carriage came to a standstill, and Julien called out to someone on the road behind. Jeanne and the baron leant out of the windows, and saw some singular creature rolling rather than running towards them. Hindered by the floating skirts of his coat, unable to see for his hat, which kept slipping over his eyes, his sleeves waving like the sails of a windmill, splashing through the puddles, stumbling over every large stone in his way, Hastening, jumping, covered with mud, Marius was running after the carriage as fast as his legs could carry him. As soon as he came up, Julien leant down, caught hold of him by the coat collar, and lifted him up on the box seat. Then, dropping the reins, he began to pummel the boy's hat, which at once slipped down to his shoulders. Inside the hat, which sounded as if it had been a drum, Marius yelled at the top of his voice, but it was in vain that he struggled and tried to jump down, for his master held him firmly with one hand, while he beat him with the other. "'Papa! Oh, Papa!' gasped Jeanne, and the baroness, filled with indignation, seized her husband's arm and exclaimed, "'Stop him, Jacques! Stop him!' The baron suddenly let down the front window, and catching hold of the vicomte's sleeve, "'Are you going to stop beating that child?' he said in a voice that trembled with anger. Julien turned round in astonishment. But don't you see what a state the little wretch has got his livery into? What does that matter to me? exclaimed the baron, with his head between the two. You shan't be so rough with him. Julien got angry. Kindly leave me alone, he said. It's nothing to do with you. And he raised his hand to strike the lad again. The baron caught hold of his son-in-law's wrist and flung his uplifted hand heavily down upon the woodwork of the seat, crying, If you don't stop that, I'll get out and soon make you. He spoke in so determined a tone that the vicomte's rage suddenly vanished, and, shrugging his shoulders, he whipped up the horses and the carriage moved on again. All this time Jeanne and her mother had sat still, pale with fright, and the beating of the baroness's heart could be distinctly heard. At dinner that evening, Julien was more agreeable than usual, and behaved as if nothing had happened. Jeanne, her father, and Madame Adelaide easily forgave, and, touched by his good temper, they joined in his gaiety, with a feeling of relief. When Jeanne mentioned the Briseville, her husband even made a joke about them, though he quickly added, "'But one can see directly that they are gentle people.' No more visits were paid, as everyone dreaded any reference to Marius, but they were going to send cards to their neighbours on New Year's Day, and then wait to call on them until spring came, and the weather was warmer. On Christmas Day and New Year's Day, the curé, the mayor, and his wife dined at Les Peuples, and their two visits formed the only break in the monotonous days. The baron and baroness were to leave the chateau on the ninth of January, Jeanne wanted them to stay longer, 
but Julien did not second her invitation, so the baron ordered the post-chaise to be sent from Rouen. The evening before they went away was clear and frosty, so Jeanne and her father walked down to Ypore, for they had not been there since Jeanne's return from Corsica. They went across the wood where she had walked on her wedding day, with him whose companion she was henceforth to be, where she had received his first kiss, and had caught her first glimpse of that sensual love which was not fully revealed to her till that day in the valley of Ota, when she had drunk her husband's kisses with the water. There were no leaves, no climbing plants, no copse now, only the rustling of the branches and that dry, crackling noise that seems to fill every wood in winter. They reached the little village and went along the empty, silent streets, which smelt of fish and of seaweed. The big brown nets were hanging before the doors, or stretched out on the beach as of old. Towards Fécamp, the green rocks at the foot of the cliff could be seen, for the tide was going out, and all along the beach the big boats lay on their sides, looking like huge fish. As night drew on, the fishermen, walking heavily in their big sea-boots, began to come down to the shingle in groups, their necks well wrapped up with woolen scarves, and carrying a litre of brandy in one hand and the boat-lantern in the other. They busied themselves round the boats, putting on board, with true Normandy slowness, their nets, their buoys, a big loaf, a jar of butter, and the bottle of brandy and a glass. Then they pushed off the boats, which went down the beach with a harsh noise, then rushed through the surf, balanced themselves on the crest of a wave for a few seconds, and spread their brown wings and disappeared into the night, with their little lights shining at the bottom of the masts. The sailors' wives, their big bony frames shown off by their thin dresses, stayed until the last fisherman had gone off, and then went back to the hushed village, where their noisy voices roused the sleeping echoes of the gloomy streets. The baron and Jeanne stood watching these men go off into the darkness, as they went off every night, risking their lives to keep themselves from starving, and yet gaining so little that they could never afford to eat meat. "'What a terrible, beautiful thing is the ocean,' said the baron. "'How many lives are at this very moment in danger on it, and yet how exquisite it looks now, with the shadows falling over it, doesn't it, Jeanette?' This is not so pretty as the Mediterranean, she answered with a watery smile. The Mediterranean, exclaimed the baron scornfully. Why, the Mediterranean's nothing but oil or sugared water, while this sea is terrific with its crests of foam and its wild waves, and think of those men who have just gone off on it and who are already out of sight. Jeanne gave in. Yes, Perhaps you are right, she said with a sigh, for the word Mediterranean had sent a pang through her heart and turned her thoughts to those faraway countries where all her dreams lay buried. They did not go back through the wood, but walked along the road. They walked in silence, for both were saddened by the thought of the morrow's parting. As they passed the farmhouses, they could smell the crushed apples, the scent of new cider, which pervades all Normandy at this time of the year, or the strong odours of cows and the healthy warm smell of a dunghill. The dwelling-houses could be distinguished by their little lighted windows, and these tiny lights, scattered over the country, made Jeanne think of the loneliness of human creatures, 
and how everything tends to separate and tear them away from those they love. And her heart seemed to grow bigger and more capable of understanding the mysteries of existence. Life is not always gay, she said in tones of resignation. The baron sighed. That is true, my child, he replied, but we cannot help it. The next day the baron and baroness went away, leaving Jeanne and Julienne alone. End of chapter 6